You're listening to the Board Game with Education podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, we want to let you know that World's XP will be live on Kickstarter on Tuesday, November 19th. So if you're listening to this episode on its release date on Monday, it will go live the following day. And if you want to check out World's XP, it's a gamification toolkit for teachers to use in your classroom or for homeschoolers, anyone that's in charge of a learning environment. You can use World's XP to gamify your learning environment. If you want to check it out, you can go to worldsxp.com. All right, let's get to the show. Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. Welcome to the Board Game with Education podcast. We have today an episode from James York. He is our guest today. He is an English language teacher from Tokyo or originally from the UK, but now based in Tokyo. I'm actually really excited to get into this conversation and share it with you. He gives you some awesome, really great tips for using games, especially if you're a language teacher. Even if you're not, he shares some really great insights into using game-based learning We go into the history of his experience in game-based learning and talk a little bit about the things he learned along the way. And he shares a new podcast in general that he just started with a colleague of his called the Ludic Language Pedagogy Podcast and Journal. So if you're interested in submitting some research or some things you're doing with game-based learning, be sure to check out this episode. Before we get started with this episode, we want to hear from our sponsor, Our sponsor is Fort Circle Games. They are a historical-based board game company, and right now they have a game on Kickstarter. The game is called The Shores of Tripoli. So it's a one-to-two-player historical-based board game. So any history teachers out there or anyone that really enjoys history games, be sure to check this one out. So again, kickstarter.com, you could find it at The Shores of Tripoli, or just check our show notes. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Board Game with Education. I have an awesome guest in James York and I. We go way back. I was just mentioning to him before we started recording here that he was the first teacher I stumbled upon in the game-based learning space online. He recorded a segment for another podcast we both listened to called Tuesday Night Games. So I'm really excited to finally get together and chat a little bit. Before I introduce James, I did a little bit of research and we're going to try something a little bit different for our guests. And I did some research about a fun fact about James. And James, I see that you like to make chiptune music. And I was not sure what that was exactly, but it's basically 8-bit music for like uh, video games. Yes, yes. If you want to just share a little bit about what chiptune music is and then... Maybe introduce yourself a little bit. I know you're an English language teacher in Tokyo at a university, and you mentioned your university is very supportive of your (laughs) ventures into game-based learning, so I'm excited to hear a bit about that today on the show. For sure. Um, Dustin, thank you for having me on the show. It's, uh, yeah, I've been listening to the show since the uh, inception, the, the beginning, where I was initially thinking of doing something similar, and then thinking, oh my God, someone beat me to it, and then... Being be more like, oh, okay, yeah, this is cool. You know, there's enough space for lots of people to do different things in the 
game-based language teaching, especially with board games. That was the unique selling point originally, right? The, the board games w- were a feature. But anyway, yes, uh, my name's James and I do make chiptune music and it, uh, this is a thorny topic. So chiptune is more of, of an aesthetic rather than a genre of music. So there's a rift between chiptune and VGM, which is video game music. So chiptune is not necessarily video game music is basically what I'm trying to say. Chiptune is the use of the the sound chips in antiquated game uh, consoles like Game Boys, uh, Super Nintendos, Nintendos, Mega Drives. We just use the sound chips to make modern music. It, It doesn't necessarily have to be video game music. Does that make sense? Right, right. I heard maybe something you made for the podcast that we'll kind of talk about your podcast in a little bit. Was that something that you had created for the show? Uh, yes, I think so. For the, the LLP podcast one. Yes. Yeah. That, that was, that was a friend of mine made that and it was done on a mega drive. Okay. Is that similar? The chip tune then that's, that's what it would be. So chip tune is just, yeah, using old, old computer chips to make music. So you can have uh, bluegrass chip tune, you can have rock chip tune, you can have techno chip tune, you can have any kind of genre just made with these sound chips. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. I, I learned something new. I, I'm your friend on Facebook, so I'll see you post chip tune. I, I kind of knew what it was, but not exactly. So now I have a better foundation. It's a huge part of my life. I'm a, a chip tune artist. I also run a, a chip tune record label. So I think that the limitations of, of of using those sound chips is where you, your creativity can can come through. If that makes sense. So by, for example, I used to, I used to make techno on a PC with, you know, a professional digital audio works, workspace and, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of plugins and just infinite instruments to, to mess around with. And it's kind of analysis paralysis. You, you don't know what to use, but with a, with a Game Boy, you're limited to four channels and particular sounds. So it's more, I don't know, you can kind of get more creative if you like in a strange way. Right. I know. I mean, I'm sure you probably go into game designing and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit too is that your creativity kind of grows out of those limitations absolutely yeah yeah so we're not here for a chiptune podcast we are a, a game <laughs> podcast so you are teaching english language in a university in tokyo can you share a little bit about your experience with like game-based learning or using games in education and who you are exactly yeah absolutely so i moved to japan in 2005 and around this time I was still playing World of Warcraft, you know, classic uh, molten core style World of Warcraft. And I came to Japan, kind of put it down for a bit. And a friend of mine said, hey, let's play World of Warcraft. And at the time, I just moved to Japan. I didn't know much. Well, I didn't know any of the language. Uh, so I said, look, I'll play World of Warcraft with you if we can join a Japanese guild. So, yeah, this was the kind of origin of my game based language learning, I, I think. Um, around 2005, 2006, we joined a Japanese guild. We'd have guild chat going, you know, on the screen, and I'd be able to pick up some kind of conversational English, some sla- uh, sorry Japanese, some slang Japanese, and yeah, that, that, I think that was my kind of in- origins in it. And then I was working in an elementary school for about four years and not really doing a, a ton of stuff with innovative, you know, game-based language learning or anything like that. I got a job at a university around 2000 and 
I want to say, <laughs> I don't remember now, but yeah, about 2011 maybe is when I started to really consider researching something because now I'm a university teacher. I, I need to find a research um, field that I'm interested in. Hey, let's, uh, let's use games. So I was looking for video games originally to teach English and I, I tried to use Portal 2 actually, but the students found it very, very confusing you know, the, uh, the co-op mode where you're, you're shooting portals on the wall and trying to, you know, direct each other in certain ways in this 3d landscape. And I was also teaching, you know, classes of 30. So games, uh, video games were, were not really that instantly applicable to my context. I did have some success with scribble notes and other, you know, I, iPod games at the time. This was before smartphones became kind of ubiquitous, but uh, I had some fun with uh, escape room games on on iOS and things like this. And then I met uh, a colleague, Jonathan Dehan, who is is very published in the field of games and language teaching. And he kind of inspired me and he, he introduced me to board games. And I just found that board games were infinitely more applicable to large classrooms. Uh, maybe you have this, a similar experience. And, and that's where my journey started into using board games as a teaching tool, which we can talk about if you like. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. I know I've I've read a bit of your research and I've used some of your research in a presentation talking about game-based learning. And uh, I think we kind of did something similar where we asked our students how we believe those board games or how we believe those games helped in their learning. So how do you see games or board games help your students as a teacher maybe? So uh, my background in linguistics, oh, sorry, applied linguistics even, I did an MA in applied linguistics. And, you know, I think one of the most mainstream teaching methods that we're taught in language teaching is, you know, CLT, uh, communicative language teaching and task-based language teaching are kind of the two main approaches. Um, Because, you know, task-based language teaching is quite a rigid, easy to implement framework for teaching languages where you have a pre-task where you kind of onboard students to a, a task that they'll be doing later in the lesson. And then they go through the task, uh, which is which requires some kind of communication between the students. And then after the task, they reflect on what they did, maybe pick up some new grammar and the teacher helps them, you know, correct, correct mistakes and things like this, right? So... The I found that board games in particular really fit into a task-based language teaching approach where, well, I mean, to me, it just seems so obvious now, but before you play a board game, you essentially have to kind of pass a test, if you like. You have to read the rule book and get this kind of passive language skills before you do uh, productive language, production language skills during the actual gameplay itself. So... Yeah, so essentially the task-based language teaching where you've got a pre-task. Well, for me, board games was reading the rule book. The, the board game play itself, you have lots of different language use where you're communicating about turns, you're maybe checking rules. If it's a game like One Night Werewolf, communication is a, a core part of the gameplay progression. And um, so you, you, you're using language during the gameplay. And then after the game is finished, then you can reflect on that gameplay and maybe correct your mistakes, think about what you could have done better. So it, it just really kind of clicked for me that the, the, the progression of board games and the progression of a task-based language teaching class really kind of coalesced, if you like. I don't know if you have a similar experience. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think you really verbalized very nicely that connection between 
that progression and the learning process and that progression of learning a board game. Cause that, that first round you play a game, you're not quite exactly sure if you're doing it right. You're learning as you go. And then eventually round after round, you're getting the rules down. And then maybe you have to go back to check the rule book really quickly to check one rule, but eventually you kind of master the game if you play it enough and you don't, you don't need that rule book. You just put it aside. I think you did a really good job at, at making that connection. I never really fully considered that connection there. Yeah. I mean, my, my teaching framework, it, it really has been an iterative process going from, well, initially I, I had students, my conception was a kind of blended learning approach where the, the class time would only be for gameplay and learning the rules and reflecting on the gameplay would all be homework. And it was just way too much of a cognitive load. And also the, uh, the students would be changing board game every week. And it was just completely impossible. This, this idea of, you know, d- learning the rule book by yourself at home. Uh, it was, it, it just takes way too much time for a second language learner. And then uh, the idea of changing the board game every week is, even as native speakers, we need to play at least two or maybe even three times to fully understand how the game works. So the, the idea of cognitive load theory, where if, if the task that you're doing is so complex that you can't focus on the language, then you know, you're just not going to output any language. You, you're, you're just constantly thinking about rules. So you need to find this slow ramp from maybe playing in the first language, maybe playing in Japanese first, just to get the whole nuance and the feeling of the game and then trying in English, and then maybe trying again with improved English after you've done some grammar instruction between play sessions. So yeah, I think slowing things down and making sure that students are, you know, taking their time and reflecting on the language that they're using is uh, it's a really good part of board gaming. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, and I think we could go off topic a little bit, but I don't. I kind of want to keep us focused. But I love how you mentioned using Japanese the first time you play it, and I know in the English language learning community or language acquisition, there's that idea that you shouldn't use that mother language. But I love how you, in this instance, this is a perfect reason to use the mother language. And I kind of fall into the idea that it's fine to use the mother language in class. Absolutely. I think that this is a huge caveat of CLT and, and things that things that teachers are being told about, you know, student speech time, students speaking the second language is paramount for everything in your class. If you can get your students speaking for 90 minutes, you've done a good job is really um, a, a, a terrible conceptualization. And I've really had my eyes open to this in the last few years that you know, there's a lot more learning that can happen other than just outputting, you know, random, or for example, let, let's plan a party or let's, let's do some uh, directions around town. I mean, how useful is that really? You know, if you can get them to critically think about what they've been doing in class, if you can get them to read a rule book for a hundred minutes and speak primarily the L1, they're primarily speaking Japanese, to confirm with each other what they've understood about the rule book. I mean, that, that's learning. It doesn't have to be them just, you know, v- verbatim regurgitating some, some trite conversation from a textbook. It, it can be a lot more than that. So, yeah, I think that if, if there's one takeaway from, for other language teachers is you don't have to have students talking full stop all the time. There's a lot more things you can do in the language classroom, right? <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think you nailed it perfectly. That's how that's, language learning in the real world. If we are going traveling somewhere and we have a basic foundation of the language, we're going to try to try to understand it to or make sense of it in our own language and then navigate that situation. 
yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with using the L1 in the classroom, in my, uh, my opinion. Because how else are you going to verbalize a really complex topic if you don't have a full you know, grasp of the L2? If, you can't, if you're learning the L2, sorry, the second language, if you're learning the second language and you're not very proficient in it, how can you then talk about that? So this idea of translanguaging or languaging is using your mother tongue to talk about the second language. So for example, in, in the, the, the rule book reading activity, maybe you have a very complex sentence and how are you going to talk about that? How are you going to check com- uh, understanding and uh, comprehension of that sentence if you're not using the first language? I mean, there's a fine use for it right there, in my opinion. Right. I, I totally agree. But maybe let's go back to what you were talking about, explaining the rules and kind of creating that ramp you mentioned. Do you have any techniques to help students understand the rules before bringing the game in class or as you go about it in class? You mentioned maybe playing it in the first language. But maybe if we're just talking about just any game for any environment, do you have them watch a video before they come to class or what are some other maybe tips you have? Yeah, so we talk, I talked about having a conceptualization of uh, a blended learning experience where students would do things at home before they came to class. Um, I really kind of knocked that on the head and, and decided to cancel that. Um, instead, I find that getting getting students into groups in the classroom and doing these video watching activities or rule book reading activities as a group in class time is uh, hugely valuable. Um, you, you're probably aware of like a so, uh, social, what am I trying to say? SCT, the uh, uh, so, social cultural uh, theory where, you know, you've got um, the idea of a, a zone of proximal development where students, for example, by yourself watching something um, you're only going to get uh, a certain level of comprehension. But if you're watching it with somebody else or, or somebody that's an expert, or it, it doesn't need to be an expert, but if you're watching it with somebody else, you have somebody to converse with and check your understanding and your comprehension of the video watching. So this idea of uh, social learning where if you're, if you're watching with somebody else, then that person perhaps understood things that you didn't understand and perhaps you understood things that that person didn't understand. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't think blended learning or this idea of the flipped classroom is, is really that useful. I think that actually having students in the class working together on these activities is, is much better uh, for them, uh, for their comprehension of, of activities. So where I would originally send everything as homework to do, now I actually spend seven weeks. Uh, so that's seven individual classes around gameplay. So I guess the point here is that the classroom doesn't have to be only for gameplay. Um, if, if you can do many more activities before and after gameplay in the classroom. And that's very important. That, that's a part of learning, you know slow it down. Right, right. I, I completely agree. I think it's it's really, it, I think as educators in the flipped classroom is something that's kind of popular now. We need to be conscious of why why are we flipping it? Is it just to follow the trend or is it because these activities are more beneficial outside of the classroom than they would be in the classroom? Yeah. And I, I'd just, you know, I'd, I'd say be wary of, of how much learning is actually happening outside of the classroom because from my experience, doing all these activities in the classroom with other students is, is much more beneficial. Yeah, I can't, I can't agree more with my university students in Taiwan. I was, I was never sure how much they were studying outside of class. (laughs) So I was, I was very cautious about what I assigned as, as 
work outside of class. Yeah, as a concrete example, in my own context now, the only things that students do for homework are transcribe their audio recordings because I get students to record their gameplay sessions with their smartphones. And then as a group, they divide that audio between them. They go home and they write out the what, whatever has been spoken during the gameplay. And that's the only thing I do as, as homework because at, literally you can only do that as a uh, by yourself. It's not a group activity. So, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's super awesome. I think that's, I guess, pedagogy gold there where you're taking a game as a, especially as a language teacher, something that you could do is extrapolate on that game process, record it, have them transcribe that. And then that's just an extra activity based on what you're already doing. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a huge part of my current teaching process. Obviously, I'm a language teacher, so we're trying to improve their language. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to record what they did. Uh, Again, we're talking about cognitive load. During gameplay, you don't have the time to reflect on what you've just said or if you're actually using Japanese or English. So to go home and look at it post-gameplay is uh, very, very important. Which it also allows them then to during the first gameplay session. I say just say whatever you want, you know. Just if you can't say it in English, just say it in Japanese. It doesn't matter if ninety percent of your first gameplay session is in Japanese, because guess what? That is um, amazing material that we can then use. Uh, we can analyze and find common patterns, find uh, grammar points, or find words that you didn't know how to say in English. Then we can just translate that and analyze that in the next um, class, and then following that, we're going to replay the game. So you should have some. Um, more language skills and tools to use in the second gameplay session. So uh, again, using the L1 as a tool for L2 development um, comes out of that. Right. That's awesome. I mean, it gives them that extra opportunity to learn in the process of looking back at, well, what was that word? I couldn't remember. Okay. Let's look it up. Here's the word. Let's go back to the game next, the next day. And then I can use that word. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly the, uh, the structure that I'm using. That's super awesome. So I think you have a lot of advice and ways that you've used games and you have just started a podcast in a journal called the ludic language pedagogy podcast. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's what's this all about? Absolutely. Yeah. So LLP, ludic language pedagogy, it's the, it's just three keywords, really ludic meaning, you know, games and play ludology comes from that uh, language. We're referring to that as language and literacy practices as well. So not not specifically um, the foreign language or the second language, but any literacy practices in the classroom. And then pedagogy is just a fancy word for teaching. So three keywords, uh, games, language, and teaching. Now, the reason we started the journal was because as applied linguistic scholars and, you know, computer-assisted language learning and teaching in general, we found it quite hard. I mean, I don't know how far your academic career or reach is um, particularly, but as somebody that's using board games in the classroom, there's really not many places you can publish work on that, um, if, if, especially in language teaching. Most of the studies on games are precursed with D. So digital game-based language learning is a, a kind of a staple term in our field. So if you're not doing anything that's not digital, I'm sorry, if you're doing something that's not digital, it's hard to publish. So we just thought, well, why don't we just start our own journal? Because so, me and uh, uh, Jonathan Dahan, we both use board games quite, quite a lot in the classroom. And 
So we started the journal as somewhere to output our own work primarily and to bring a focus back on teachers in language language teaching. So if I wanted to check out the journal, what I guess I've been on the site a little bit and what would I expect if I were listening to this podcast? I wanted to go check it out. So the podcast itself is a supplement to the journal. The journal is the main bread and butter of what we're doing. It's, it's an academic scholarly um, journal with um, an ISSN number and peer-reviewed papers. But the podcast is a supplement to the submissions and the, the articles that we, we uh, publish. So we're currently recording a podcast for our first article, which is Jonathan Dahan's paper on multiliteracies and language teaching. And it's, it's kind of a, what can I say, a, um, a back channel to see what the author was thinking about and any kind of tips and tricks regarding their, their teaching practices. That's awesome. So as an example, maybe if I submit something on there, would I be invited onto your podcast to kind of talk about the paper? Or is this something that you guys would analyze without me? <laughs> no, no, it, it's 100% the, the editors of the journal and the author kind of chewing the fat talking about the, uh, the, the article that just came out. Yeah. Really cool. I mean, I know as a teacher and reading some research and what I would love sometimes is kind of understand the, I guess, the process of why this teacher did this, but also like how they did it. What, what specific things did they do in class to, to, to finish this, you know, this research? Like, like you were given some examples. That is a fantastic point. We, the LLP is, it's dedicated to revealing what the teacher did um the 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 llp the pedagogy part the teaching part is a is a core component of the journal and we actually have uh, a submission type called walkthrough um, i'm not sure if you you probably are but you know uh, hey listen games the zach over there i think you had him on the podcast no yeah yeah he was on the show yeah yeah so basically what he's doing where he's blogging about exactly what he's doing in classroom sharing pictures and media of his students work that is what we're looking for in llp we want to know what teachers are doing and like i said we have a specific uh, category of papers called walkthroughs which is no coincidence we're, we're you're probably familiar with game facts the website where you can get a walkthrough of a game we want that we want a walkthrough of a teacher's teaching what did you do in the classroom tell us share it with us tell other people let's improve our practice that that's a really key component yeah that's i mean that's super awesome and i think invaluable for teachers as well you just gave me a huge flashback of the the game facts and printing that 100 pages on the printer and going back like three hours later it's done yeah that's what we want we want to know you know what what are you doing in the classroom tell us share it with other people because that's what's missing from academic journals um, like recall or computer assisted language learning journals for a start they're behind a paywall so you can't even read that research unless you've got a lot of cash uh, and second they focus a lot on learning outcomes and they don't say what the teacher did or how it was even done so we want to we want to have open access open peer-reviewed articles on practice so yeah and hopefully Zach will be publishing something for us in the in the near future yeah, I mean, his blog is, it's really great. You can go, it's heylistengames.com and you can check out, like, he does social studies lessons with games. 
language learning lessons. I think he has a couple math lessons, maybe two, but he actually like looks at the process. There's down, downloadable lesson plans, downloadable PowerPoints. It's really, really awesome. So how would someone maybe submit a paper if they, they just go to the website and it's peer reviewed? Yeah, it's peer reviewed. It's open peer reviewed. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but peer review essentially is normally blind where the author and the reviewers do not know each other. Um, Our peer review process is open peer review. So you'll be paired with two people that you know, and all the peer review happening happens within a Google Doc. So you submit as a Google Doc and then uh, in the comment section, we say, I'm not quite sure about this sentence. What do you mean by this? And it's a conversation between the, uh, the author and the reviewers. So it's very friendly instead of like super negative And this is, this is tripe. Please, please resubmit, send it elsewhere. It's a very supportive atmosphere. But yeah, if you wanted to submit something with LLP, head over to the site and there's a, there's a tab at the top, which says send us your manuscript and yeah. And what's the, what's the site again? LLPjournal.org. Okay. LLPjournal.org. So you've, you have done a lot of research and you've used a lot of games in class and a lot of board games. Do you see any challenges that you might or you have come across using games? Um, I think I'm very lucky in my context in that, like I mentioned, uh, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword maybe. The fact that my my context is pretty slack the teachers don't impose any guidelines on me on how I need to teach or what I need to any targets that I need to hit it's very liberal in in that way that I can teach what I want so the challenge would be to get this research or this 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 method of teaching accepted by other staff in my faculty I think this is probably something that you've come across yourself Uh, the idea of you know games games being frivolous or games only used as a kind of Friday afternoon treat or something like this. Um, I think there's a lot more things you can do. And I think games are as legitimate as using a novel like I don't know, Moby Dick or something like this, or, you know, literature in the classroom or videos, movies, uh, comics. I think the, the, the perception of games is it requires some more faculty development and uh, kind of making people more cognizant of the potential of games. And that's a challenge, I think, not just for language teaching, just, you know, awareness raising around games and treating it as another media. Right, right. So we kind of talked a little bit about game-based learning, your experience with it, the journal. Would you have any maybe last words of advice you might say to someone listening? Yeah, um, I think that it's important to both as much as you can read literature, find out what other people are doing with games. Yeah. Be, be, be well read on pedagogy, um, teaching practices, um, how learning occurs, what's good learning, what's good teaching. That's, that's always good. Uh, another thing is to be, is to persevere. My current teaching framework, which I call Kotoba, Kotoba rollers. Kotoba is a Japanese word for word. So it's like word rolling. (laughs) But um, my teaching framework has been through multiple iterations. Yeah. So persevere and slow things down. We we were talking, me and Jonathan were talking the other day about, well, I I mentioned to you just now how my, my original teaching was every week, a new game. And now I'm only playing one game over seven weeks. So it's really been slowed down. So (laughs) the idea of game-based teaching as you're familiar with a vaporwave music 
No. <laughs> what is what is vaporwave? Vaporwave music is this kind of modern uh, music genre where they take eighty early eighties synth based music and they just slow it down like two hundred percent and add some new beats over the top. So it's like this kind of lo-fi hip-hop. So we're thinking of game-based teaching as Vaporwave, you know, just slow it down and, 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 you know, make this journey longer and more, you know, interesting. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think you're like, you gave some good points or some good tips is extrapolate on the game and build more activities centered around that game, like recording, having students record their game and then transcribing what they said. I think you make a good point. Yeah, here's a tip. Here's a, here's a good good piece of advice, right? If you, uh, this is from language teaching again, but if you were to sit down and watch a movie in Spanish from start to finish without knowing any Spanish, how much learning is really going to occur in that? The same thing is with games. If you just sit down and play a game using Spanish or whatever language it is that you're learning, you know, how much is going to ha- how much are you going to learn in that gameplay session? You'll find that most learning happens around the gameplay session. You, you need, you know, pre gaming activities, post gaming activities, loads of post gaming activities, the more, the better. And I, so that that's one thing. Yeah. Don't think that playing a game in, in unto itself is where the majority of teaching uh, learning is going to happen. It's just not. The second point is make sure that you you, you um, augment gameplay with lots of uh, additional activities. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. So for our final segment question, we have, if you are stuck on a deserted island. What three board games would you bring? Okay. The first one is chess. I think I'd take chess because it's just a classic. You can play that forever, essentially. Um, The second I kind of got stuck on, it would either be Resistance Avalon or Two Rooms and a Boom. Now, both of these need lots of people to play, so (laughs) there's a bit of a contingency on bringing these. Of the two, I think I'd go for Two Rooms and a Boom just because it has a special place in my heart. It's the one that I, I bring into class at the start of every year and it's it's so unique it really shocks students it it's just incredibly well well developed game i'm sure you've played it yourself but the idea of having you know two physical spaces where students move around and they're just like what this is a board game you can do this stuff um so that really has a special place in my heart so I'd, i'd probably take two rooms and a boom and then the third one i thought would be gloomhaven um I have it here. I've only played it a handful of times, but the reason I take Gloomhaven is, yeah, obviously it's a very well-developed game and it it has a lot of love in the board game community, but I just think the remix potential is incredible. You know, you have so many different boards, so many different characters, so many different cards. It's basically a game-making toolkit as well, so that would probably be useful on a desert island. (laughs) Yeah, I think we actually probably share two of the same three games. I would probably do two rooms in a room and Gloomhaven as well. We, I want to finish Gloomhaven. We got like 70% done maybe. And uh, it's just been sitting on the shelf since then. <laughs> All right, James, thank you very much for coming on the show. I think it was super helpful. And again, your podcast, Ludic Language Pedagogy, I think will be very helpful in the journal as well. If people wanted to reach out to you, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter and my username is CheapShot. Uh, or you can email me at contact at llpjournal.org. Awesome, James. Thank you again. 
Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time. And one last time before the Kickstarter ends, be sure to check out the Shores of Tripoli. You can go to kickstarter.com and search for the Shores of Tripoli. It's a really, really cool looking historical board game. Plays in 45 to 60 minutes. Would be a really great addition to your board game library in your classroom or if you homeschool. Really nice addition for homeschool as well. So definitely check it out. The Kickstarter will end on Thursday. So check that out. Today's episode comes out on Monday. We only have just a couple days left. So be sure to check out the shores of Tripoli on Kickstarter.